Hey everyone, I'm Kate Galliford. And I'm Corbin Gregg. On today's episode of Retrospect, we are very excited to welcome back Dr. Jeffrey Ng, the Director of Fordham Counseling and Psychological Services, who you may remember from an episode we released in November called Coping with Crisis, where we discuss the toll that living during a pandemic has had on our mental health. Today, in the spirit of Valentine's Day, we chat with Dr. Ng to talk about what healthy relationships look like in the context of a pandemic and why it's important to keep romance alive. This is Retrospect, the official podcast of the Fordham Observer. I'm very happy to welcome back Dr. Jeffrey Ng, Director of Fordham Counseling and Psychological Services. Dr. Ng, thank you for taking the time to come back on Retrospect again and chat with us. You are very welcome, Kate. Today, I kind of want to focus on relationships, both romantic and platonic or familial. Although, of course, with Valentine's Day coming up, I'm sure we kind of all have romance on the mind. And so last time you were on, you made a comment about how, even though there are so many ways that we all keep in touch virtually and don't have to completely give up our relationships, you said specifically that even though we have them, when it's through a screen or they're virtual, they can be less nutritious. Are there ways that we can kind of try and replicate that sort of real emotional relief that we get from in-person intimacy when so many of our interactions are just online? You know, I don't think we fully know yet, you know, our understanding and our, our research and our investigation about pros and cons and the challenges of screen media interactions are still emerging. You know, that being said, there are some things that we've heard just anecdotally on the ground about how students and really all of us can try to optimize having virtual interactions so that they do feel, you know, more intimate. So we do get more sort of bang for our buck with the time that we are interacting online. And, you know, before I share, you know, what I've heard some of those things to be, I I just want to put the caveat out there, right, that you know, clearly these strategies may not be ideal or feasible for everyone. We're all obviously unique in terms of our, our histories and you know, our, our personalities and our styles and what we might gravitate towards. And so just sort of take like what works for you and like let go of the rest, you know, certainly try them out. And if it doesn't feel like it's uh, like increasing your sense of connectedness when you're engaging in virtual interactions, then try something else. So I'm, I'm going to mention a few concrete things that are more tangible and sort of lower hanging fruit, and then some other things that might be a little bit more challenging. So, so the first really concrete thing, you know, that I, I've heard and that I myself have experienced as facilitating and be more conducive to intimacy when we're engaging in you know, Zoom conversations like this is to turn off the display to your own image. What I've heard and what I've seen is that, you know, seeing your own video can be just distracting. And so that way, at least if you're interacting with somebody, you know, one-on-one, your focus can be much more on the person that's on the other end of the the screen, right? Rather than also being distracted by seeing your own face. So that's a pretty simple thing to do. And I would, you know, encourage folks to try that out. I've also heard and seen that when we're interacting with a larger group, that it's preferable and more conducive to like intimacy and connectedness and attunement when we put Zoom on speaker view, right, so that you're only seeing the person who's speaking, it zooms in on the person who's speaking, rather than being distracted by, you know, 25 other faces, right? So with both of these suggestions, I think the, the intention, right, is to try to minimize the video or virtual distractions that might be present, right, on your screen, so that you can be more, like, emotionally 
attuned and present to the person on the other end. I think in the same vein, um, and I, I know that we've all been sort of struggling with this in the past year, and, but in the same vein, I think if we can minimize distractions in the rest of our environment, that that would be ideal too, right? So not only minimizing distractions that are on your screen, but also turning off your other devices or putting them on silence, right? And, and I know we've all had moments where we're supposed to be paying attention to someone and we're like looking at our phone, right? You know, my, myself included turning off the television set that's in your room or closing your window so that there's less distractions coming from from outdoors. So whatever we can do to minimize these kinds of like stimuli, right, that might distract us from paying attention and being present with the other person on the other end of the screen would be ideal. For social gatherings, my experience has been, you know, that the more we can sort of limit how many people are present, perhaps the more engaged we can be. The, the more participants there are on the call, obviously, the, the more distracting it can be. It can also like impact and make a bit more confusing, like the sort of social cues and social turn-taking, et cetera. And, and lastly, you know, I think we can take advantage of some of the, some of the technology that we, we have right now to engage in interactions and activities that are just organically more interactive, right? There, there are things that have been developed, right, that are meant to be interactive, like a game like Among Us or... Animal Crossing or Netflix Party, right? Like those things are meant to be and have been developed to be more engaging and interactive. So I think it's worth, you know, giving some of those things a shot. So that kind of lends itself neatly to my next question, which is all about long distance relationships and long distance couples. And I even think like the term long distance has really expanded uh-huh. its definition in the last year or so, because right. in a pandemic, long distance can mean that you and your partner are separated by closed borders of another country or Mm -hmm. you're a few states away or for some people even just being in different neighborhoods of the same city it all comes down to whether you can safely travel to see them if you feel it's safe Mm -hmm. um, what's realistic for you so my girlfriend and I were long distance over the summer and last semester and for most of that time she was here in the dorms and I was just like an hour away in Connecticut Mm -hmm. which is objectively not very far right but there were still limitations put on us and our ability to see each other in person because of travel and health and safety concerns. So I'm fortunate to be back on campus, but I know for a lot of people, there's kind of no end in sight for when that will be their reality. And I I think it just is a simple, non-controversial fact that like it's harder to keep romance or connection alive over screens or when you're long distance and that sort of thing. But I mean, why is it important to keep working on that? And what does, even though it kind of sounds cheesy or non-scientific, like what does romance do for us? And why is it important to keep pursuing that? Yeah, I mean, we can talk about, you know, the sort of neurochemistry, right, of physical contact, right? <laughs> um, I mean, you know, we, we know that, you know, through physical contact, there are certain neurochemicals that are, that are released, right, that essentially give us, you know, a high. The, the one that's most commonly talked about is oxytocin, which is you know, also in layperson's terms, like referred to as the, the cuddle chemical. And you know, we, we need you know, some of those sort of you know, rush over flood of neurochemicals to sustain a joy and, and happiness, right? And you know, we've evolved right, to you know, have these you know, neurochemical experience to facilitate you know, sort of human bonding and connection. And so without the physical contact and intimacy, it's more challenging. And we feel it in our bodies, right? Um, and we feel it, you know, emotionally. On, on that note, I, I also want to like highlight that, you know, we talk a lot about mental health, right? That's my primary job and role on campus. And clearly, it's a, uh, 
a topic that a lot of students are thinking about and talking about nowadays and, you know, experiencing in their own ways, right? You know, whether it's trying to maximize their mental health or, you know, working through their own mental health struggles, or they have friends and family members or peers or loved ones, partners who are also struggling with their mental health. We have to remember that, that what the mind actually is. We talk a lot about mental health, which is the health of the mind, but we don't talk a lot about what the mind is, right? Like if I were to ask a random person, like, what is the mind? I don't know. What, what would you say? Just out of curiosity, right? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> organ, but also something more abstract than that. Yeah. Exactly, right? So, you know, you mentioned like, like the organ, right? Like, so the, the mind is obviously embodied, right? You know, there's a component of the mind that is a function of our, our brain and our sort of neurophysiological activity. Right. But it's also so much more than that, as you said, like the mind is also relational, you know, how the mind develops and then subsequently our mental health is also a function of our, our relationships with the world around us. So it, it's a both and it's embodied and it's relational. So when, when the relational dimensions of the mind are compromised, as they have been for the past year, you know, as they are when there's, you know, physical distancing or separation from a romantic partner, a loved one, it could lead to mental health challenges because it negatively affects the mind. And so I think your question is like, how can we address that, right? In this, you know, really odd and unique situation that we're in, right? So that we can preserve the health of the mind. And, uh, and I don't think we have all the answers. And I think this is all still so new and we're still trying to figure it out. You know, one thing that really comes to mind for me that, you know, I, I've been talking about in, in, in my world is to figure out how we can create, you know, what some folks refer to as like double bubbles. You heard that term? I have not. Or quarantines? No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's essentially exactly what it sounds like, right? It's, it's creating a bubble, you know, with another household or with another, you know, social unit. And it obviously has to be something that is done really cautiously, really intentionally, and only under certain conditions, right? But it, it's not a, like an abstinence-based approach, right? It recognizes that there's value, right? And that there's importance with human connection. And so let's figure out how we can create those while reducing risk. So a, a double bubble is essentially an agreement between two, two households or social units, right? And, and that agreement involves being able to spend time only with each other, right? Only with the folks within those two bubbles. And it also requires, you know, like a verbal sort of contract, right? And, and trust that folks will abide by that contract that would include, for example, an agreement that, you know, folks within those mutual bubbles, you know, they, they don't engage in other risky activities, right? And that they quarantine for whatever the requisite number of days are, if they're exposed in some way. So it requires a high level of trust and communication, right? But it allows for, you know, that interaction, right, between people from two different households. And it can only be done, you know, when like community spread rates are lower. It can't be done if there's anyone like in the household who is, you know, from a higher risk population or is more vulnerable, right? So there are some conditions that have to be in place, but it's like a sort of middle ground approach, right, to reducing COVID transmission rates and risk while also acknowledging the need for human contact. And so I guess also kind of in that vein, I was thinking about families or couples or anyone that do live together and they see each other constantly. Maybe they're mm -hmm. all working from home or taking classes from home and kind of the entirely different strain than that that comes from living in such close quarters right. and for people who have been for months. And so I guess my question about that is how do we set boundaries with loved ones or kind of 
take measures to preserve feelings of privacy and kind of mm-hmm. fulfilling our own need for a long time, maybe in a house where there's people all the time and that sort of thing. No, that, that's really important. And I think, you know, you're right, Kate, that that's the sort of other end of the spectrum where we're overly exposed to people, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, that, that we need some, you know, some, some space with at times. Well, I, I think, you know, that one of the most important things is for the folks in those households to, to individually determine what those boundaries are for themselves, mm-hmm. right? And, 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 you know, what those parameters are for themselves before then also, you know, proactively engaging in some conversations with the other family members about what those needs are. You know, I, I almost feel like it can be a really sort of structured kind of like intervention, right? Or activity that, you know, we all take some time individually to figure out and to come to some conclusions about what we need for ourselves. And then we like have some communication, all right, and some conversation about those things with each other and identify like strategies for actually carrying out what the, you know, different people's individual needs are. It's not always easy to do. And, you know, there are some households and families where, you know, there just isn't the physical space, right, or the resources that would allow for, you know, those boundaries to, to be met. And I think in those you know, scenarios, you know, we have to take other, other approaches. So part of the reason that Corbin and I felt really eager to have you back on the podcast and why we're so pleased that you had the time to come back on to talk with us Mm -hmm. about Valentine's Day and romance and relationships and all of that kind of in the context of our mental health is that last time we felt you did such a fantastic job of illustrating why it's normal and okay and more than that necessary for people to kind of ask for help. Because I think there's a stigma around needing relationship advice or relationship counseling even because Mm -hmm. it might make us feel like we don't know our partner well enough or that we could be trying harder but even outside the context of a pandemic no one is all knowing about themselves and their own feelings let alone the feelings of their partners their relationships in general so I think if you just wanted to speak to that a little bit further and maybe encourage people who are on the fence about reaching out to Fordham CPS or another similar service to kind of take take that leap and start that dialogue. I think that would be fantastic. You know, I'll start by just, you know, focusing on on relationships. This this is the the theme of our conversation today. And and I'll say that relationships take work, right? (laughs) Um, They take, you know, a, a lot of work at times, you know, both like behavioral work, but also like emotional work you know, for relationships to be successful. And I put that in sort of air quotes because I recognize that definition of successful is uh, relative, right? right? But for them to be satisfied, we have to work on them, right? And what that also means is that there's always going to be challenges, I think, inherent to really any relationship, whether it's a friendship or, you know, a romantic relationship, familial relationship, that there are always going to be challenges. And I say that just to sort of normalize you were saying earlier about how like we all at times might struggle with our relationship and that's to be expected. And so if if you're struggling, um, if you're struggling with your relationship, you're not alone. It's okay to seek guidance or support for addressing either the dynamics within the relationship, you know, whether it's something like, you know, family or couples therapy, but to also then address like your own contributions, right. To what those struggles may be, right. To also develop, you know, skills, you know, with coping and communication so that you're more effective in um, navigating those relationships. Those are all really important. And then to sort of add to all that, right? Like, as I was saying earlier, relationships are so pivotal for our holistic well-being. I think it's, it's important to address them. Does CPS offer any like specific services for Fordham students that they can maybe work out potential relationship problems with the help of a counselor? 
either one-on-one or in more of a group setting or anything like that? Yeah. So, so we do offer interpersonal process groups, you know, which are focused on examining and better understanding like our, our role in relationships and our like tendencies, our interpersonal tendencies. I, I will also say that like in individual one-on-one therapy and counseling with our, our, our staff that, that we're very interpersonally focused, mm-hmm. right? So, so we do spend time attending to and examining what our students' interpersonal styles are and trying to like also sort of frame that in terms of like how it might be impacting, you know, their lives. Well, thank you so much for making the time to come on. It's always wonderful and eye-opening to talk to you about this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So we're both very appreciative that you made the time to come on today, talk about relationships, both romantic, and I think there's a lot there for people worried about their friendships or mm-hmm. other platonic relationships. So we appreciate it a lot. Thank no, you. No, absolutely, for sure. Thank you so much. This has been Retrospect. Thanks once again to Dr. Ng for joining us today. As always, we encourage any of our listeners who are struggling as a result of the pandemic or otherwise to explore the options offered by CPS. Until next time, I'm Corbin Gray. And I'm Kate Galliford. From both of us here at Retrospect, please have a happy and safe Valentine's Day and take care of yourselves. See you next week.